You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, attorney Dan Mayer and licensed counselor, Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now here are your hosts. Hi there, and welcome back to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. This is Melissa. As you might notice, I sound a little bit different today. Dan and I are working out of not our most usual circumstances. I'm in the midst of losing my voice. Dan is currently in a hotel room recording today because he lost power in some of the storms that have happened. So I sound a little bit weird, but we're going to continue because we're really excited about today's guest. Today, Dan and I are talking to Dr. Carrie Singer, and Dr. Singer is a licensed psychologist who owns a group private practice with 40 mental health professionals in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. She enjoys networking and mentorship opportunities with clinicians looking to scale their businesses, and she's passionate about making mental health care more affordable and accessible. And she's a regular commentator in news articles and conferences, especially on the subject of value-based care and behavioral health integration into primary care. We're going to hear more about that today. She lives in Maryland with her husband, daughter, son, cat, and dog. A little bit of everything. Nice to meet you all. Thanks for having me. Yes. And I will just say that I'm excited to have you because, you know, some of what I think we're going to have, you know, do you talk about today? We're going to ask questions about today. And I think a lot of what your focus is and what you've accomplished is what a lot of practitioners want to do, right? When I have a new practitioner or someone who wants to start a new practice coming to my door, that's one of the big questions they have is how do I grow this? How do I scale this? How do I do this? What do I need to be doing? You know, for people who already have a practice who want to then, you know, go into a group practice, the same questions. And you've done that. You've answered those questions. You've, you know, figured it out. Now, of course, as you own a practice, there's always questions and things that come up you have to overcome um, and address. But you know, some of those questions that these people, these clients are asking, you know, you've, you've answered those, you figured those answers out. And that's why I think it's so exciting to have you on, because I think people listening, these are questions they have. So thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. And I think especially during the pandemic, there's been such a demand for services. A lot of people are thinking, well, can I add other people to my practice to help absorb some of that referral volume? And uh, it sounds great on the surface. And you think, mm-hmm. wow, I'm going to like, double my income in no time. And it doesn't usually quite work that way because there's costs involved in scaling and determining what profit margins are and how much your reimbursements are and you know what other staff, support staff are you going to need. And it can be a lot to, to figure out in the beginning. And I find that most people when they have maybe less than five clinicians working for them are kind of hating life because they're still full-time seeing clients and full-time trying to manage a business. And they feel like they can't kind of satisfy everyone's needs. So that's the point where I do work with practice owners and offer them consultation and kind of hope <laughs> and how, what can you take off your plate, you know, because you can't wear all the hats and be happy with what you're doing. Yeah. I'm so glad you just mentioned the hats, is, you know, the, you know, idea and, that point particular, I think, is really important because I think you just hit home one of the biggest, I think, mind shifts that a practice owner has to go through if they're going to grow from, you know, either a sole practice or a couple, you know, clinicians working to, you know, practice like of your size. Because the reality is to get to a practice where is it, you know, of your size, where you are, for example, you can't be seeing clients anymore. You're not, I mean, it's not that you can't rely on your clinical skills, it's not that you can't rely on your clinical training. It's not that that doesn't come to play. Of course it does. But there is a mind shift, I think, that 
true practice owners who want to grow into that amount, that size have to go through is, okay, I'm actually a CEO now. I'm actually wearing a business person hat. It's not just the clinical side of things. I have to focus on a whole range of other things in order to get the practice to grow to where I want it to go. So I think that's a really great you know, bunch of points you, you, you mentioned. And of course, nobody usually has that background experience. Maybe they do from before they went to graduate school and they were in a different industry, but it can be a lot to learn on the fly. And some things, it's like trial by fire. Like you don't learn until you make a big mistake that costs you a lot of money <laughs> or mm-hmm. you know that you have to get a lawyer and a CPA and understand the licensure law inside and out. And, and that's one of the truisms. Like, and I think Melissa, we've talked about this on podcast before is that you know one of the things that clinicians don't get when they're in grad school, I'd say 99% of the time, um, is that that business training, right? And I, I, I like to joke because in law school, like for example, I didn't receive training on healthcare. There was, there was no talk about healthcare. There was no talk about mental health, which is a billion dollar industry, right? You know, but we got plenty of talk about business, right? But clinicians on the other hand, you, know, you go through the clinical process, but no one ever talks to you about, hey, if you want to start a practice or run a practice, here's the business side of things. And that's so important to... You know, again, it's another hat you have that you're going to be wearing. And sometimes it's kind of the left brain, right brain. Like, I'm good at listening and the touchy feely stuff, but like the number crunching and the mm-hmm. giving people bad news, like about their job, like that doesn't come intuitively. And you have to kind of grow into learning both parts. Yeah. Well, and in season two of our podcast, we've been talking with mental health practitioners about a specific challenge they faced what they learned from that situation, what steps they took, and how other mental health providers can learn from that situation. And today you're going to be talking with us about some things that maybe aren't here yet, but some challenges that people are really concerned about. And so I know in general, you've said that you've really been getting involved in mental health policy, that you are really interested in finding ways to make mental health care more affordable and accessible. And one of the things that you said is that there are major changes coming soon for insurance-based practices that therapists are completely unaware of and unprepared for related to value-based care. So it sounds like it's not here yet, but it's coming and people don't even know that it's coming. And so since you've been really paying attention to this, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. And I don't want to scare people, but just I don't think it's on most people's radar so um, about three years ago, we joined, it's called like a, an accountable care organization or managed service organization called Privia Medical Group. They have 2,800 physicians in eight states and we're the only behavioral health practice. Well, mm. we were at first, now they've got, I think one or two more, but, and so I would go to these doctor meetings and I would see all of like the measures that they had to complete all the time. Like your primary care doctor has tons of things that they have to report on. And like that they were being penalized for referring to specialists or for higher costs, like imaging, or they were being asked to try to do all of the things themselves that they could. And they were getting a lower base reimbursement and then they would get a bonus for the patients whose care costs the insurance company less over the course of the year. Of course, there's a lot of variables in there. It's hard to say that, you know, because the physician did X that the patient resulted in why, but that model is now being applied toward behavioral health. They're thinking about, you know, during the pandemic now, all of a sudden insurance companies are spending tons of money on outpatient behavioral health. Before we always flew under the radar, it was like, yeah, behavioral health, we have a separate benefit plan administrator. We keep that separate, you know, but now it's like, wait a minute, this is a lot of money. And what are the outcomes that we're getting? You know, we're paying for some members to go to therapy weekly for years 
you know, and they're still having adjustment disorder. Like, I don't think so. Like, and so I, there's going to been a lot more talk about requiring outcome measures about, you know, joining different consolidated provider networks, um, kind of having the bonus opportunity. What they don't say is that they'll probably reduce the base pay for certain procedural codes. Um, so it's a little bit scary because I think a lot of people are already on the fence about working with insurance anyway. Mm-hmm. And if there's going to be a lot more scrutiny and oversight and paperwork, <laughs> forget about it. It's not worth it. Yeah. Now I'm wondering what you know, what your thoughts are. And just as you're formulating all this, I'm thinking about some of the things that you really care about, which are making sure that mental health care is affordable and you're getting this information. And I guess I'm just wondering, how are you integrating that for yourself right now? Well, I mean, I remember when I got started in private practice, I had a mentor who took all insurances and I was like, well, why do you do that? And he said, well, I believe in healthcare for the many. You know, like I probably could make a little bit with self-pay, but like I wouldn't feel right about it because I'm not like those people either. Like I can't afford 200, 250 a week out of pocket for a year. Like I just, I want to work with people who really need the help. We can't find it elsewhere. And that inspired me. And I I feel the same way. And you can do okay taking insurance. You know, I guess it's like a supply and demand thing. Like, you know, if you take cash pay only, then you're going to have to do really good with networking and marketing and making sure that you have a steady stream of referrals. And during the pandemic, maybe that's been easy to come by, but now, you know, we have inflation and layoffs are starting to happen and that, that climate might change. Whereas I feel like insurance, like a good economy, a bad economy, like we always have referrals. Like my practice in five years grew from myself to 40 practitioners and we still have 1400 clients on a wait list. And we only take commercial insurance. I can only imagine if we took Medicaid, but there's such an extreme demand. And I always say like, you know, the lower income people, they don't have great options, but they have community mental health centers. They have wraparound support services. They have vocational assistance, housing assistance, you know, and then the rich have whatever spoils they desire. But the middle class, the working class people think, oh, I have insurance that I pay into, you know, I'll be able to get good care. And then they realize calls and calls, emails and emails. Nobody has openings. Nobody can work with them after school or weekends or has specialty in the conditions they need, or they wait and wait and they get there and oh, it's not really a good personality match. And then they sometimes give up their search. Like, well, I tried, you know, and then maybe they end up in the emergency room because they had a panic attack they thought was a heart attack. And like, it ends up where they end up having to go inpatient. You know, it ends up costing the healthcare system a lot more money than preventative care would, but trying to get more clinicians on board with accepting insurance when all they see is lower reimbursements and more headaches. I don't want to have to call and check on deductibles and pre-authorizations and understanding all this terminology that doesn't make sense. You know, it's interesting because you're touching on something, I think, out from a broad perspective, which we will not be able to solve here on this podcast, you know, either in general or even today, is that the medical system, the healthcare system in America really is reactive as opposed to pro, you know, proactive. You know, we're trying to you know, head off things from happy. It's more like, oh, now you have a panic disorder. Now we'll treat it for these, you know, 10 sessions, you know, whatever it is, right? But it's not, let's have you get the treatment you need now to prevent future problems down the road. And I think that's a really a great point. I, I, that's the, you know, one of the biggest things that concerns me is, you mentioned this, is that as this model, if it starts to come fruition in terms of mental health care, you know, it would seem to me that you're not going to have clinicians disappear. You're just going to have clinicians say, Okay, well then I'm just not going to take insurance, right? Because I'm not dealing with a headache, and there are there are people out there who can afford to pay $250, you know, a session. So okay, we'll do that. So I, you know, that's a big concern of mine. I'm glad you mentioned that because um, I do agree with you that this is it's concerning. What's happening in the medical world now is concerning, and I can see it 
being applied down the road very soon to the mental health world. I was recently at a value-based care conference uh, related to behavioral health. And uh, Beacon has a new chief medical officer and he's from Talkspace and he's a psychiatrist. He went on to say how, you know, it seemed like his opinion was that therapy is not very um, scientific and it's not always very helpful. And that he thought that um, their next approach would be um, requiring all of their in-network clinicians to record their sessions. Uh, they have a software that uses machine learning and artificial intelligence to analyze the tone, empathy, sentiment, word choice, you know, used in those sessions by the therapist to essentially grade the therapist on their performance and presumably structure their reimbursement based on that, which is just seems so outrageous to me. Like, how are you going to get clients to agree to have their sessions reported? And you think like some chatbot is going to like understand the depth of this better than the, the trained professional. I'm not saying that every mental health professional is always at the top of their game, but I think most people want to do good. And I think the research shows that no matter what treatment modality you use, if your client thinks that you're a nice, caring person, that mm-hmm. they're going to have better outcomes. So everybody's about evidence-based gold standard of care. That's what health plans think. They hear CBT and they think that's the panacea because they don't know as much about the other modalities. Yeah, I totally hear you. And it's scary, right? If there's someone who doesn't understand the value of therapy, making decisions for clients, making decisions for providers, you know, someone who doesn't understand the value of the relationship, rapport, being heard, being seen, having a space to share, that's kind of scary. And I will tell you, the lawyer, being a lawyer, what I hear is, okay, so we're going to record sessions and now have recorded, you know, video documentary of in documentation of a recorded session that is now subpoenable in some form or another, right? You know, essentially, you know, if a court orders it, it can be released, you know, so that, that you're essentially creating evidence that could be used. And that to me is just so, it, it just makes me, as an attorney, it just infuriates me. I'm like, that is like the worst way of doing it. Yeah, of course, there's a lot of privacy concerns. And well, why would, clients, why would clients consent to this? Correct. And he said, oh, you know, we ask clients to sign off on things all the time and they don't know the difference. <laughs> so you're banking on their, their ignorance on the subject. And oh. you know, people in med- metro areas around here were like, oh, well, then I'll just get off Beacon. I don't need them. They suck anyway. But people in rural areas were like, well, the majority of my caseload has Beacon. So I guess I'll have to do whatever they tell me to do because I don't want to lose that contract. And that's, you know, strong arming people and creating these monopolies. And I will tell you that I hear you say that. And, you know, another reason I find that so egregious is because I'm like, okay, so if a lawyer does that, you get this barred, (laughs) right? Like that kind of mentality is like, no, like in, like in attorney ethics, for example, like if someone is abiding by attorney ethics, like that would be so like egregious an act to be like, if that were like, you did that. That to me is like, how in the world could that be even ethically responsible in the mental health clinical world, you know? Well, it seems coercive, right? If an insurance company says the only way that you can use your insurance to receive treatment is if you agree to have your sessions recorded, Mm -hmm. right? That insurance company is using their power, their influence to get someone to agree to something that they might not truly want to sign up for. Yeah. That's right. But everyone, you know, I think he's kind of a radical example. I don't think most insurance executives are thinking that way. They're just thinking, we have a major access problem. We have all these members who can't find providers. 
you know, and it's like, okay, well, why don't you raise your rates and try to make your processes a little bit easier to draw more people in the network? But no, that's not what they're doing. They're partnering with these digital health conglomerates that like, oh, we can take care of all of that problem for you. And making like things like Talkspace and Ginger, like in-network benefits now for patients. So now you have this middleman who's jacking up prices to the client, cutting reimbursements to the therapist who says, look, we have thousands of people in our network and we can serve clients within three days of when they ask for an appointment. That seems like a panacea, like wonderful, amazing. Our problem is solved. So the access problem is solved, but the quality problem is not solved. And a lot of those patients terminate prematurely, report that they didn't have a good connection with their therapist, or they were only offered like a text-based chat platform, not a real face-to-face therapy. They didn't get to select their provider. They weren't given any kind of treatment plan or diagnosis. It's all like counseling light. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just going to say, there's a, in my opinion, there's a, a glaring continuity of care issue there, right? Because the reality is in this quote, and just as a side of this quote, this exact point I'm about to make comes up when I'm talking to practitioners who are talking about leaving a practice to go start a practice. And there's always discussion of, well, what happens if my clients want to come with me? And I'm like, well, of course your clients, some of your clients are coming with you. Because when a, when a client, mental health client establishes a relationship with a therapist, right? As, you know, that connection you just mentioned, their the ability to be comfortable with that person is so important part of that relationship that, you know, and that therapist becomes, gets to know that person, gets to know, you know, talk to them and, and work with them, right? If you have this person just jumping to therapist, therapist goes, oh, in three days, I can have an appointment with you with totally someone random who has no idea who you are, doesn't know anything except what's in your file. To me, like you just said, like you're going to increase the number of time, you know, uh, rate that people fail or, or drop out. You're really not doing anything to help um, the clients. Um, it's just not as helpful as a steady, continuous relationship with one therapist who can work with that client. You know, we know, and you mentioned this earlier, that there are some conditions, there are some situations where people can be in therapy for years, and it just, you know, doesn't. It's not doesn't mean they're not getting better. It doesn't mean that it's not helping. It just means that this is not like a here's a band aid. Now you're all better type situation all the time. And I posted about this on LinkedIn last week, and I got half a million views that some of these companies are facing out FDA investigations, Senate yep. hearings for, you know, um, there was one company called Cerebral that was apparently pri- prescribing patients antipsychotics after laying eyes on them for maybe 10 minutes, you know, handing out Adderall like candy, not really asking any questions, mm-hmm. had them seeing multiple different therapists, assigned them a care navigator that was all named Diane, but really it was all these different people and they didn't know who they were actually talking to and wow. and then uh, like Talkspace and BetterHelp have apparently been selling aggregated patient data oh. to companies like Facebook and others. So like oh. people, patients really don't understand what they're signing up for in terms of the, the rights that they're waiving or the quality that they could be entitled to. Yeah. I, I, will, t- I will tell you that <laughs> point you just made, that is another thing that, will, that sends me through the roof. I'm like, you know, this isn't like what type of food do you like to eat, right? So I'm going to target ads to you. This is literally people's private mental, you know, health, private health information that you're showing. And to me, that is absolutely so great. It should absolutely be illegal in my opinion. They're just, oh, it just grates on me so much. Well, and there are some really well-known concerns that people have about taking insurance for providers, right? You know, the reimbursement rates, the process of billing, the complication, and it sounds like rather than those insurance companies saying, wow, gee, a lot of people are complaining about our processes. They're complaining about the rates, the reimbursement. Hmm, maybe, maybe we should address those things that we know about 
And instead of addressing those things, they're like, let's do this other thing instead that's really, really complicated. And that will make life even more complicated for everybody else. Well, and I've had the luxury of getting to know some insurance executives and they're not all bad. You know, some of the local plans, they they want what we want. You know, some of them do have clinician leadership, but they're like, look, we're not that nimble. We can't just like make right. big decisions and change everything up because that's not like kind of how we roll. <laughs> like, why not? Yeah. I think, that, I think the part of the problem, right? And I think this goes to the heart of the talk based on headspace, things like that, which, you know, of course are being funded by private companies. And I think it's part of the issue with, the healthcare industry in general is that insurance companies, by and large, they have shareholders. They have, you know, they are looking to make a profit. You know, in addition to providing, you know, critical services and providing uh, funding, I guess you could even say to to help people get critical services. And you so can say, day, well, do do we have parity yet? This mental right. parity law has that no. really changed anything? And I was reading an article that said like. In the years since mental health parity law was passed, there's only been one case that was successfully mm-hmm. won, and that was uh, was awarded fifteen million dollars because uh, United Healthcare, uh, their son was in drug rehab, and after like fourteen days, they said like we think he's good to go, we think he can utilize the coping skills and function outside of that setting, and then he overdosed and died. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure there are lots of different examples that maybe aren't as direct, you know, but that where people have not had access to equal benefits. I have a question for you in terms of your thoughts on, on these, is there ever a time or is there ever a uh, situation where some of these online therapy forums or services could be useful? Do you see, you know, or in your opinion, is it really better for the, for the client in general to be more with a local based practice where they can either do teletherapy or go into the office? And that's, and I want to make clear, this is not a little question. I'm actually curious to see, you know, if you, if there's, you know, use for, or there's ability to, to that these services can you know can can provide some benefit. Well, I think the fact that they can deliver services like within three days that's pretty mm-hmm. impressive. You call around here trying to find a private practitioner who can yeah. do your you know your SOL, and I think part of it is also falling on therapists. And when I say that, people get upset with me. But especially during the pandemic, like I feel like our field's version of the great resignation has been people cutting their caseloads in half. You know, they're feeling burnt out, they're tired, they get kids at home, whatever the, the situation is. Mm-hmm. They want to see fewer clients and probably increase their rates. So their access has gone down, their you know, affordability has gone down. And that drives consumers to look for other options because we just don't have enough mental health professionals, especially if they're only seeing half the clients they could be seeing. And then I also wrote an article yesterday about how many of the clients that are on your caseload still actively, desperately need help. You know, I I would guess that almost 20% of anybody's caseload could probably be discharged. But I think like, at least for me in graduate school, I went to a psychoanalytic program. It was like, keep the patient in therapy for all their life if they want, have them come up to five times a week if they want. It was more like the patient setting the treatment agenda. And when you work with managed care, they're like, if the symptoms are reduced, if the treatment goals have been met, why are they still coming? You know, I think that's a different approach to thinking about it. Like, I feel really bad that we have 1,400 people on our wait list. And I really want to get to them quicker. And this person who no-shows or cancels their appointment every other time or just wants to complain about like their mother-in-law, like <laughs> that doesn't feel as meaningful. But it's mm-hmm. hard to say, okay, well, this client I've known a long time that I'm comfortable with, that I have good rapport with, like I'm going to release you into the world so I can take on another case that might be a lot more challenging. Like it's hard to, to work in the same way as some of these big companies that have tons of staff and they have metrics and guidelines for discharge, for frequency of sessions, depending on condition, which we don't want manualized prescribed treatments either. I feel like there's got to be something in the middle. Mm-hmm. You know, and it almost sounds like, so, you know, we hear a lot like the term medical necessity when you're talking about insurance companies. 
And, you know, sometimes I just talk to clinicians, it feels like there are times where it's like, come on, man, like this is this client still needs help. But I sounds to me like, you know, you're saying the middle ground that there are times, though, where, you know, maybe a client doesn't have a medical necessity anymore. Maybe there is a, 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 an argument to me that you step down care at that point or even discharge the client, you know, because maybe they are ready to kind of move on. If they need to come back, they can always come back. But to your point, there's such a long wait list. You know, I don't know a lot of practices here in this area in Baltimore area that all have wait lists. They're all searching for clinicians just to try to hire, desperately trying to hire enough people that some of this caseload should be released. It's an interesting point. And I ask, uh, I tell our clinicians, I say, think about it this way. If that patient was paying out of pocket, would they still be coming? Would they still find this necessary? That's a great question. I love that. I love that. That's a great question. Because this is what insurances think that we're doing. Mm -hmm. They're like, ah, they can come forever. They just pay their copay. What's the big deal? Like we can, we can keep peeling the layers of the onion. And they're like, no, we don't care. We just care about the top layer. I get them functional. Right. Question for you. In terms of the challenges with your own practice, you, know, you said you talked about your wait list. Have you been affected by, I'm assuming you have, I'm assuming it's kind of a dull answer. Yes, Dan, I have. But um, I'm assuming you've been affected too by the therapist shortage. One of the things I quest, question I have for you is, you know, what are you doing in terms of as therapists, bring therapists on who are, let's say, provisionally licensed or they're training under you? Do you look to keep them, try to keep, retain them as a practice? Or do you, you know, if they say, look, I want to leave. Hey, great. No problem. You know, let's, let's keep in touch. And, you know, do you kind of establish that bridge with them? You know, what's your kind of balancing act there to try to make sure you're, you're t- getting to that list, you know, while retaining therapists? Does that make sense? Oh, sure it does. Yeah, I think, you know, just like the whole world is, it's really, there's more jobs than there are job seekers. Mm-hmm. And you used to put up an ad on Indeed and get like 10 applicants and like, hmm, which one do I want to pick? And now it's like, you have to like cold call people and, you know, hit people up on LinkedIn or Facebook or, you know, try to get their home address and phone number. Try like, like oh, please, you know, you, you really want to come work here. Maybe you just don't know it yet. You know, so it's definitely a different method of marketing uh, to the new hires. But then, yeah, it's a lot easier to retain staff than to always be hiring for new ones. So when they do join our team, really having to step up our game with like, what is somebody really like, they could be working for themselves. Like, why should they work here? Like, what are we going to give them that's going to be hard to find elsewhere? So number one, we always make them W-2s instead of 1099s because that's a that. nice yeah. fair thing to do. You know, if you're a 1099, you're essentially self-employed. I don't know. Um, so W-2s, we offer a really good health insurance plan. We pay half the premium. We give a 4% 401k match. We give a $500 a year CE stipend. And if they want to get a specialized training, we'll offer up to $3,000 for them to do that. We got approved for the, um, as a student loan forgiveness site for the national. Very cool. Whoa, cool. So if they work with us for two years, they get $50,000 forgiven off their loans. That's awesome. Yeah. So just, um, and, and also building community is, and it's been hard having a mainly virtual team for the last two years, you know, because I think that's why people value being in a group because they worry about like loneliness and isolation. They like to have people to bounce ideas off. So we pay them to attend peer supervision. Everybody gets a clinical director and they get um, an hour a month paid that they can meet with that person um, and lots of different kind of professional development activities. We got approved um, by the APA as a CE sponsor so they can get all their credits in house. Like um, if people want to be a supervisor, we have a training program, we have an externship for psychologists and we have, um, we take on LGPCs, LMSWs. So I was just going to ask, that was the next question I was going to ask you. So I'm glad that you kind of rounded up your point on that is, you know, in terms of, you know, men- mentorships, in terms of training this next generation, you know, how big a part of your practice is, is that what's your 
with these people, you know, this is the training of employees. Do you find that as they leave or if they go start their own practice, does that help with your own referral network? Because one of the things that comes up a lot when you have a large waiting list is, you know, sometimes it's easier to refer people out. Um, does that create a better and more opportunity for you guys to be able to refer people off that waiting list if you can't get to someone, let's say? Sure. And we always hope to have people come for a training experience and then stay. Correct. Yeah. Uh, like, so if there's an LGPC, it would be quite easy for them to get their LCPC mm-hmm. credential and keep working with us and get a pay bump. Awesome. But if it's an extern, they might still have to go through another year of externship and go somewhere else for an internship and then hopefully come back to us for a postdoc. So they're probably going to bounce around in their career trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, you know, people who have left, we, we keep good, good relationships with them. Now, Carrie, in terms of the information that you're getting in, you know, these meetings that you're attending, this information that you're gathering about insurance and potential upcoming changes, I'm wondering how have you been integrating this information and, and has it been influencing how you practice now or what you're doing at your group practice? Um, or is that a not yet kind of a thing? Yeah. I mean, again, it's, you know, I just tell people like when you get a letter from insurance that says we have some exciting changes coming up soon for our <laughs> providers to be wary because that means they're about to drop bad news and extra requirements. Um, so if you see that letter, raise an eyebrow. But so, okay, if they want to know what our outcomes are, so let, let, let's measure them, you know? So we've been investigating different tools for um, measurement-based care that kind of link with your EHR. Mm-hmm. And before each session, it pushes the patient a symptom screener. After the session, it pushes them an alliance measure, a quality of life measure. So you can track kind of progress over time and hopefully integrate that in your session. Like this person's really struggling or this person's been doing well now for two months. Like, do you think that they're ready to step down and work toward discharge? Mm-hmm. At what point did you kind of, come this realization that you need to implement these changes for your practice? Because I think that's one big question that I come across with clients um, who are, you know, again, starting a practice or trying to grow a practice, right? Trying to figure out how to do all this. And I think that as a CEO of a practice, as the head of a practice, you know, as these challenges come up, you know, as you get that letter that you're, you're talking about, right? You now have to think creatively and think, okay, how am I going to respond? How am I going to do this? You know, in I guess what I'm curious is how is your thought process? How do you come about these ideas? Is it you talk to other clinicians? Do you do a lot of reading research on this? You know, because it's very innovative. You know, it sounds like your practice is extremely innovative. I read a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, there's nothing good comprehensive to read. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I thought if there was enough time in the day to write a book on how to start a group mental health mm-hmm. practice, because it is different than starting a solo practice. Mm-hmm. And I had to piece things together from different industries about how do you hire and what's the right management infrastructure to have and what are all the different billing aspects because you have to know how to do every single job in the practice. And luckily, I'm at the place anymore where I don't have to step in and do all those jobs because now we have other people who can do that. But for a while, you are going to have to know a lot about a lot of different things. Uh, you're going to have to understand about budgeting and the financial forecasts and you know tax preparation and you saw these things that before felt like an afterthought, you know, now it has to be front of mind. And so taking as many free meetings with people as you can, having as many networking things, picking people's brains. Most people like to talk about themselves and things that they put into place. So just trying to learn from other people's experiences. I was going to say for other mental health providers who are curious about what you're talking about today, I'm wondering like, what are some things that they can be doing to be staying informed, to find out about these things? Are there meetings that they can be attending, groups that they can be participating in? Are there resources that they should be looking at if they're wanting to be informed in a proactive way? 
Yeah, I think one thing that our field lacks and why it's an easy target is because we don't have great advocacy. Like our professional membership organizations are generally geared toward academics, you know, and research. They're not always focused on private practitioners. And how can we have a lobby or an ally? You know, maybe we can have um, collective bargaining power if we were to unionize or band together. But each practitioner is like, well, I don't want to rock the boat, you know, and I want to just kind of fly under the radar and do my own thing. And like, so like joining forces, it's not always like, I lately I've been approached by a lot of different digital health companies that have read my posts and they're like, well, could you be on our advisory board? Like, how can we reach therapists and try to recruit more people to come join our platform? Like, where do therapists congregate? Like, how do we reach them? I'm like, I don't know. Where do therapists gather? Conferences? Not really anymore. Like, are they reading Psychology Day magazine? Probably not. Like, we need to have some kind of unified place where there is more sharing of information. Like, I guess we have a lot of different th- Facebook groups. That's really the best I was going to say. I can think of. But that's, <laughs> that's the fault. On mm-hmm. I think well, that, that's the fault. I, I was just going to say to your point, I've noticed that I feel like that is the default now because there's not these other spaces, because there's not these other situations being created for people to do that. It seems like people, seems to me, you know, talking to clinicians, you know, interacting with clinicians that they are resorting to Facebook to try to fill some of that niche. And I guess there's, there's some good of that, but then I also think there's some bad things like, you know, a lot of misinformation that can be spread pretty quickly. Um, and I think that's a really good point because I think that is something that seems to be missing. Um, or people, are glad to, or people are glad to complain about things, but yes. not many people want to stand up and advocate or like, you know, be the front runner to kind of fall on the sword and say like, you will not treat us that way, society. Mm-hmm. Right. I do think, I'm curious for you. So in your opinion, being where you are, what are the practice that you do? You know, where do you think the industry is going to be 10 years from now? And your own opinion, like where, where is this going to be? You know, you've already talked a little bit about, you know, some of the ideas that are being kind of tossed around within the insurance world. But as an overarching big picture, you know, if you look at the world of medicine, you know, you mentioned this, you're, you see how much it's become uh, just kind of regimented, I guess you could say. Where do you see the world of mental health in 10 years? You know, is it really in this, this regimented world? Is there going to be some sort of uh, positive change that comes out or is it pretty much doom and gloom? Well, I'd like to be more optimistic, but I think <laughs> it'll become more diluted and more consolidated. So what I mean is that you know, like um, you start out with physicians and then you need nurse practitioners, physician assistants, like, you know, you have to have more providers to meet the need. I think it's going to be the same in our field. Um, so now Medicare finally said, oh, counselors, we're considering letting the bill for us. Like, finally, like, why didn't that happen years ago? Ridiculous. Sure. But so now there's also a lot of plans considering uh, credentialing behavioral health coaches who really have almost no training whatsoever to do kind of like lighter touch interventions. Like, did you take your medications today? Did you use your coping skills? Are you staying in touch with your support network? Like we're going to have to have more people to meet the need. Because I think the projection was like, yes, the impacts of COVID right now are salient, but those will continue to amplify for 10 years. So mm-hmm. I think the need is going to continue to be there. And we can't just all of a sudden have, you know, you know, thousands and thousands more people going to graduate school to become mm-hmm. mental health professionals. That would be great if it did. I think there's some uh, barriers to entry there too. There's not enough graduate programs Um, They're way too expensive, you know, so I think more, um, you know, tuition reimbursement, loan reimbursement would be great, you know, if we can make that happen. But in the absence of that, I think they're just going to allow paraprofessionals to also provide services, which is unfortunate for consumers, but I understand why it might need to happen. And then the consolidation, just like how, um, you know, like hospitalist groups will buy up physician practices, the same is starting to happen in behavioral health. 
So you're going to have just these huge mega corporations that are controlling mental health. Like my, my fear is that like Google, Walmart, Amazon, and CVS will like eventually own all the mental health providers in the country, which would be terrible. Wow. I don't think I would, I don't think personally I want to go to Walmart for my mental health. <laughs> Have it. They have their little minute, they have their little minute clinics, minute clinics in certain right. locations next to where you get your glasses. That's right. The minute clinics. Exactly. You touched a little bit on, you did, you just mentioned about the coaching aspect. One of the, the things I'm just curious, that's, I hear a lot from people because of this, you know, the demands of insurance is, well, why don't I just go and start doing coaching run therapy and I'll just go coaching and I'll just bill, you know, my hour, you know, rate an hour rate or something like that. Is there room, you know, for in terms of like, for example, couples or other, you know, uh, I don't say modalities, but other pop, I guess, uh, population segments. Is there room for coaching to help with some of this, you know, especially when you're discharging someone who maybe doesn't need therapy anymore? Mm-hmm. Maybe they could use coaching. Is there um, a place for, for coaching like that? Should it be done by mental health professionals or, you know, as you said, is it is it more something that can be done by you know, just anyone just getting some sort of certification. Yeah, I think different strokes for different folks. If people want to coach and people want to be coaches, that's great. But if somebody has anxiety, I don't think they're going to think necessarily to go to a coach to manage it. If they're having career concerns, they might. If they're having specific relationship concerns, or maybe they don't want to have a record of them receiving treatment for whatever reason, or they don't want to be labeled as like a psych patient, they might prefer coaching. But I think a lot of people will say like, well, how exactly is it that you're going to interact with me and help me? And I find most coaches to be a lot more assertive and directive. And so I think that can work for certain client types, but others might not, they might just want to be able to be heard a little bit more and have reflection. And So what are some things that you think private practitioners or group practitioners can be doing to prepare their practice? I know for you, I hear you saying, I'm thinking about how can we use measurements? How can we use assessments to track the data to prepare? Are there things that you think mental health practitioners should be doing to prepare? I mean, and you can always try to negotiate your insurance contract. I don't think many people do that. And sometimes it's hard to do it successfully because some of them don't even allow you a provider service contact of who I would even reach out to, to negotiate that. But you can say, look, I'm seeing this number of eating disorder patients you know, we're providing DBT services for these patients, especially if you're seeing like a, you know, a higher acuity clientele that you think that you're maybe keeping out of higher levels of care, you know, they are likely to strike a deal with you because if you say, give us better rates or we walk, they don't want to lose that resource in the community because that diversionary care is a lot less expensive for them than if those patients ended up in IOP or an inpatient. So I think there's definitely room to work together with insurance companies. They're, they're not the enemy. They just have to understand what we're doing and how we're doing it and how we're helping them save money in the long run, which is hard for us to know because we don't have access to the claims level data that says that patient's care went down $10,000 this year. But there are studies that came up from Cigna that said if a member had just two mental health sessions over a two-year period, the average savings for them was about $3,000 between pharmacy spend and total healthcare spend. So I think, you know, if you're working with somebody on taking care of themselves better, yeah, that's a lot better than them just drifting on their own. Mm-hmm. If people wanted to get in touch with you, if they wanted to to find out more about your practice, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Probably by email. Um, I can uh, give it now or to your listeners. I, I appreciate the opportunity. It's Carrie Singer and the number two at gmail.com. And is there a website that we can direct them to as well? Uh, our practice's website is qopsych.com. Yes. And hopefully people will get to check out those articles that you shared on LinkedIn. Those sound like they'd be really great resources. Thank you. And I should put in a plug that I'm creating an app. 
It is kind of like Tinder, but for finding a therapist and way less creepy and way better boundaries. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. That should be the pitch line. <laughs> yes. Well, we thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, for absolutely. For me, you know, I'm always, I could spend two hours talking with you about this because this is like when, when you know, Melissa and I nerd out about, but we appreciate you coming on. Um, for everyone listening, we hope that you have enjoyed this as much as we have. I mean, found this informative as, as, as I did. And as a reminder to everyone listening, we are always looking to have uh, clinicians come talk this season with us about um, an obstacle that maybe you're facing in your practice. You know, if you feel that there's something that you've had to go through or, or overcame that would be of um, benefit to other uh, people here, we ask you to please do reach out to us. You can reach out to us on our website. You can reach out to us on Facebook. There is a short link that we'll, uh, a form we'll have you fill out and we'll be in touch. Other than that, thank you again for joining us and we wish everyone a good day and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.